When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me again is a friend of the show, um, a film critic, culture writer, and author of Off the Map, Freedom, Control, and the Future in Michael Mann's Public Enemies, an absolutely glorious and florid and beautifully articulated analysis of a much maligned movie that if you don't really like Public Enemies, even if you don't, I think you can't argue um, with uh, Niles Schwartz, my guest, incredible prose. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Thank you for coming back. I'm ha- so happy to be back, and I, I think it's beautiful how Public Enemies has been back into in the Twitter discourse anyway, the film Twitter discourse, just in recent weeks, the arguments, 10 years later, <laughs> we are still arguing over whether it's absolutely gorgeous or ugly as hell, and I maintain <laughs> that a lot of the people who think it's ugly as hell have problems with their eyes. <laughs> I, I, a, a friend of mine named Boris Smelov had a, a Michael Manathon for New Year's where he played every Michael Mann movie, including L.A. Takedown and the Jericho Mile. And uh, I showed up for Public Enemies because I, I was really busy. So if I could, I would have showed up to eat in Miami Vice, but uh, showed up for Public Enemies. And um, he had this beautiful big screen to project it on, you know, big for a basement, basically. Yes. And, and it's uh, as beautiful, uh, more beautiful than ever. I mean, even after I look about it, it's that movie is just so I, I think its script has problems. I wish Eric Roth, for example, had gone over the script, you know, his colla- Michael Mann's collaborator on The Insider and Ali. But I think that the reason they made Public Enemies was because there was a writer's strike and it was technically ready or something like that. But it doesn't matter because to me, the the images in that film just speak for themselves and uh yeah blown away by it i I think it's beautiful and it's great that we're still debating it you know kind of like the departed right now you know the The departed came back up you know we're recording in february you guys are you know be listening to this if you don't listen to it in february to just be eclipsing into early march and it's still around it's like why do people have a problem with a rat well you know i think because uh because it's an overt symbol for for some people. And I think The Departed is a very wickedly funny, mordant movie. It's I think it has, you know, people are saying that it's not serious. I think there's, it's as serious as Dante's Inferno could be, or <laughs> say, Moly, okay? It, it's Rabelaisian in a lot of ways. So there's, uh, it's rich, but 
you know, there's this cackling cartoonish uh, extremity to it. Can we all uh, just which... agree, though? It is so blatantly Howard Hawksian. Like, there's so many more obvious things in this movie, like Martin Sheen's character plummeting to his death with X's and like all the all that iconography that was in the original Scarface. The fact that Matt Damon's character buys an apartment across from a golden tower, just like the original 1930 Scarface. Like, it is just a big gorgeous wet and sloppy kiss to like howard hawks's obvious 1930s style and shtick except it has really grotesque modern sensibilities when it comes to character portrayals and you get great actors like you know nicholson and literally mark Wahlberg's second best performance outside of dirk diggler ever um you know you get these great actors in there leonardo dicaprio's arguably top three performances like you get these actors in there and they just do some stuff they do some great stuff I don't get, like, it's no, the rat is no more obvious than the massive golden spire that is behind it, which I think if you were thinking of what was obvious, it's right there. Like, what are we doing? It's, uh, you know, it's a B movie in the great classic B movie sense, I think, you know, Scorsese himself is someone who would tell you that the old pulpy B movies of yesteryear were richer than the A-list films. And I think it's, it's because Academy Awards are coming up this coming weekend and uh, everyone's disenchanted with the Oscars. But The Departed is a Best Picture winner that we still talk about, at least. Absolutely. Which you can't say for a lot of Best Picture winners. And a lot of people say that, you know, it shouldn't have won or what. I think that, uh, you know, it was one of my favorite films of 2006. So I'm cool with it winning. So, you know, not Scorsese's best, but that's like saying... I don't know. <laughs> um, it's 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 the same argument that might be someone to say that. No, you know, are you going to compare? I don't know. Uh, Winter's Tale by Shakespeare to Hamlet. You know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, do, and, don't, and and also it's like some people might say, "Oh, the No Country for Old Men" winning Best Picture, which I think is a perfect film. And I was yeah. deeply happy that it won Best Picture, and definitely a film that still worth is worth discussion. Um, some people might go, it's not my favorite Coen Brothers film or maybe it's not their best film. It's like, well, when you are as good as the Coen Brothers and people can deeply and passionately and argue what is their best film of like a multitude of genres that they've explored, it's like, it's okay. That's okay that that one. And you can't... My favorite Coen Brothers film is or my favorite Scorsese film is, you know, to me, they're they're in... They're they're in a, yeah, they're in an echelon that doesn't, they can't be touched. You just like yeah. stop. I'm not going to argue with you. They've made too many good movies, right? But we can both agree that Shakespeare and Love sucks. Now let's just move on. <laughs> let's move on to Heat and to this minute, um, folks. As as I said, and as you guys can read on your podcast description, um, Niles and I are talking about the 126th minute. Oh, no! Don't worry about it. Cool. I'll go again. Someone try to call me. Awesome. One second. Um, so Niles and I are going to be talking about the 126th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat, and it is a mother drucker of a minute, is what I'm calling it. It has a phenomenal scene uh, between Ashley Judd and McKelty Williamson, and it's just uh, it's it's another great scene where two people, an intimate scene in this big bombastic masculine thing, 
um, this beast that this movie is. It's a, a deeply intimate scene about the bargains and the consequence and the damage um, and the real sort of human impact of this, you know, what what we're sort of ultimately kind of glorifying in this sort of gangster movie. This is like a real tangible, meaty moment um, uh, between two people. One, a negotiator who's dealing with um, uh, uh, an experienced player. So let's check it out. It's a great minute. Have a listen along. Niles, are, Niles and I are going to watch it right now and uh, you guys can listen along with us and we're going to come back and talk about it in just a minute. If you give up, Chris, you get off clean. You can do it for your kids so you can raise it. What else are you selling? All kinds of shit. But I don't have to sell this and you know it because this kind of shit here sells itself. Okay, Danny, here's an update. Hey, Schwartz, truck is on line two. Lieutenant, hold on for a second. Lieutenant, I have Sergeant Trucker on the other line. Oh, conference him in. Go ahead. Vincent, it's me. One answer, what's it gonna be? We're set here. She'll make the call. Niles, another ultimatum dished out with one answer, yes or no, right now. We've seen it with De Niro and Don Breeden. And now we're on the flip side of this heist and we're seeing Drucker dish it out to Ashley Judge Challenger Hairless. What a minute. Great minute. This shit sells itself. <laughs> it's What's fascinating to me, about, and it's always been fascinating to me about this moment in the film, is it it's almost a didactic sequence. You know, things slow down. And uh, Sergeant Drucker basically lays out this uh, social analysis of what happens to the families of of criminals. And in a way, it's it is preachy. And then she just comes back. What else are you selling? And without missing a beat, this is what makes the scene all kinds of shit. It just, it just <laughs> so much humor in there. It gets rid of all the hot air, uh, you know, and it's, it's beautiful that man put that in, but you know, but then he says, you know, it's, it's, this isn't bullshit, you know, <laughs> it, it's real, but you know, she, this is someone who's obviously been through the ringer, uh, Charlene Shaherlis. And, uh, I, I think that, that dynamic between the two of them is what uh, makes a scene work. And then, yeah, as you say, you have a replay of the Breeden, Neil McCauley thing. One answer, what's it going to be? Yes or no. And then the beautiful rack focus from, from uh, Drucker to Charlene and just her nodding, you know, it's, she can bear, she can't get the words out. The words, the words would be a betrayal. But if I just nod, I can cope with the fact that I don't I don't have a play here. She's an experienced player, and she knows she doesn't have a move. Yeah, well, you know, to quote Vincent in Collateral to Max, you know, just take take uh, I think consolation in knowing that you never had a choice. Really, I mean, <laughs> he does have a choice. You know, this is a re- recurring man theme: is you know choices, and sometimes characters don't they're desperate and they need to make a move that turns out to be the wrong move. Now, whether that's 
Max and Vincent and Collateral throwing the suitcase off the bridge or uh, Breeden or, uh, say, Muhammad Ali, for example, deciding not to step forth for induction into the United States military, you know, there are ramifications for all your decisions. And, you know, some decisions are uh, symbolic and meaningful, as in the case of Ali and other, you know, just other ones are just on the line at the last minute. What am I going to do? Yes, You've, you you you're you're trying you're you're trying to filter, and I think what's great with all those characters and all those examples, they're filtering it through their experience of the moment and their principles and who who they feel they are in that moment. And I think that Charlene, for many years, has been playing this game as a the wife of a criminal, like a mob, like you know, traditionally we call it like a mob wife in a gangster movie. And more so than a mob wife that is um, oblivious of what's happening around her, she's so complicit. Like she knows she's counting the stakes in the freezer, so to speak, and she's and she's working through it. And she knows right now that she has to abandon that rubbish because right now next to her is her son. Like that's literally the bargain that she's playing for. There's no there's no more bravado. There's no you know not being a single person and having a family. It's like whatever consequence, whatever decision that I make now, and however I play this the latent impacts of the Dominic. Yeah. And Dominic being another Mannian uh, demonstrative uh, motif, you're going back to Frank. Yes. Thief. I was state raised. Yes. And that's what's going to happen. Gladiator, Gladiator Academy's in the previous minute. <laughs> yeah. Gladiator Academy, you know, is something that we even hear that in black hat, you know, uh, that's you know people watch black hat and like well where did he learn to fight like that or shoot guns like that and well he went to gladiator academy and met some people (laughs) you know man's films are fraught with background you know where he doesn't tell you where people learn to do stuff or you know it's all he has his actors uh, absorb it all you know it's like the curriculum that he put will smith in to play muhammad ali yeah, that's, that's an understated one. You know, people talk about heat, you know, oh, look at Kilmer, look at this. And I think people go, oh, Ali, and they start talking about the merit of the movie or whether they like, you know, how it was portrayed and, you know, those Mannian things, the extra, sort of the extra textual elements of like what's happening in the political context internationally and domestically and the, and, and the FBI and surveillance, but there's a guy a star of a movie who spent 11 months changing his voice in boxing to actually accurately convey he's one of his heroes and i think he yeah. does an absolutely stellar and unbelievable job every time i rewatch that film i'm just like i marvel at him uh, his commitment i watch ali uh which you know sometimes i'll just put on the first 27 minutes before i go out dancing yes you know just to- it's a bit of sam cook <laughs> bit of sam cook <laughs> Listen to that. I, I was driving the other day listening to that song in my car and my wife was like, what's motivating this? And I'm like, it's just, it's us. It's the opening song from Ali. Don't you remember? She's like, oh, okay. I'm like, Ali yeah, loves Sam Cooke. It was one of the, the great albums and it's great for running to. And even though it's not Cooke yes. singing, the, you know, it's a simulation of it. I can't remember the singer's name, but it's beautiful. But um, yeah, so... Every time I watch it anyway, and I see Will Smith, and like, this performance is top-notch. It's amazing. Every gesture, every glance, oh, it's, 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 it's a performance. It is. I think it's, yeah. Oh, God, I don't want to, you know, you're, you're, dra- you're dragging me back into Oscar talk 
Niles, you're dragging <laughs> me back with you. Like in this year, we know we don't have Ethan Hawke nominated for best actor, but we have Rami Malek and his fake teeth. And Will Smith lost the year that he played Ali, and it's just like, dear Lord, dear Lord. Well, when I, when Ali came out, it wasn't that highly regarded. It kind of, I think people regarded the two nominations it got for John Voight and Will Smith to be kind of, well, they worked hard, so, and it's a biopic, so let's give it to them. That's kind of how I remember it, but I can't remember who won that year, even. I, I know that Russell Crowe was up for Beautiful Mind, but... Um, yeah. I don't think that was the year that Russell Crowe won. 2001. Did he win Best Actor there? No, he won for Gladiator the year before. Yeah, so but he didn't get it. Beautiful Man came out, uh, everyone thought he was going to win, but then it came out that he was a tremendous asshole. <laughs> yes. He so, threw a telephone at somebody. Yeah, and, I don't know, mocking Moby at the bathroom stall or something like that. So, yeah. Lost Whatever, he... Lost some votes. Let's come back to this. This is, um, I think there's a really deliberate um, warmth that's in the scene. Uh, that's in you know in the entire sort of construct of this room, this space. It feels very homey. It feels very warm. It doesn't. There's no hostility, and so as this negotiation plays out, like in a traditional sort of police negotiation sense, or you're trying to flip a witness, it's much more hostile. And I think McKelty Williamson's charm, and it, as you said, it's like it's the anti-Vincent in this moment. There's no hostility. There's no BS. And even when he says all kinds of shit, like it's just like that. Even the the cadence of his voice, like just the way that he just like that line spills out so fluidly and, you know, soulfully, it's like, Oh, this is awesome. Like, he's just like, like he's, he's had to be this big, tough stand up stoic pillar that stood beside Vincent's chaos. And now in this moment, he gets to kind of be more fluid himself and actually just relax for a moment and, and lean into Charlene and, and sort of take away his, and you know, his innate power being this towering huge dude with this small, you know, diminutive woman and sort of getting close and hunch up and get in there. And, and the whole sort of yellowy yellowing warmth that's in this scene makes it much more of a, like a, without being overtly inviting, it's more inviting. It's comfortable. It's homey. It's like, this is only, this is the only decision you need to make. Right. And I mean, it's the only, I think, uh, the tremendous, you know, all the uh, Vincent's cohorts are played by tremendous performers, whether it's Wes Studi or or Ted Levine. Uh, yeah. But uh, Michael T. Williamson is the one who gets a scene where he actually gets to express something. Uh, <laughs> yes. Experience. Um, and I, I think it's he there's kind of a candor to Williamson's character through the movie, like early on with uh, Kevin Harris, you know, I paged your ass all night. I can't stand fucking paging. <laughs> you know, that that's something that really sticks with you about this guy uh, that the other characters really don't have. So um, here where he comes out with it and just says, you could do it for your kid. Um, yeah, there, as you say, there's there's warmth in that, and, and it's it ex, it's expressed, I think, in the production design, the glass mm. windows, and and um, the that really wonder wonderfully composed shot reverse shot between the two of them, mm. and then that focus at the end. Um, and then 
there's an intermediary with my namesake Schwartz. Uh, with, yes, you know, <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, talking to Vincent, and I I have to dwell on that shot of Vincent. You know, it's first of all you have an establishing shot of uh, of Hugh Benny lying on the floor. His, yeah, he's in the middle. Uh, you know, there's three dimensions to the shot. You know, he's in the middle in the, the middle center. And then Cassell's is on the far right in the foreground. And then there's Vincent in the left side of the frame and the rear outside. And you cut to Vincent and you see the city behind him. And I, something that I've noticed more and more with Heat is whatever lenses Michael Mann and Donnie Spinotti were using in turn, to diffuse the city lights behind them, you know, mm. making this kind of spectral, preternatural curtain of of um, light that is uh, so unusual now it feels like. And yeah, I think actually Peter Deming and David Lynch's Lost Highway had did the same thing if you look at the the lights in the background for, with that movie. But um, and, and there's a richness in the color, like the last frame that we end on. So this is what it, it, it does that has that um... – diffusion of uh diffusion of the light so that you get the crisp focus of the performer like you said but I, one thing that i really like is just the richness of the texture of the colors there's these sort of weird entangling lights that do have some sort of structure or direction but there's also like a pillar there's a, you know another building and it has this sort of man blue light and then there's the the um, red lights of what you know you know traffic up ahead or etc and so you get this great it's, it becomes a background, but it becomes an interesting background of colors and shapes and intangible somethings that are in the background there. But, it, you know, again, it's just the, it's, uh, th- there's a life in each of these behind, you know, th- these cityscapes um, in, in ways that like, you know, when Neil's talking about it, it's, um, you know, there's this beautiful ocean of lights, you know, that are mirroring the ocean and the luminescent algae. And when Vincent's here, it's, there are shapes, there's things out there in the distance that he's going to hunt down. You know, this is just the land, you know, this is just the landscape. When Neil's car is driving and he's talking to Nate on the phone about Van Zant's house and wanting to get there, that, you know, there's this overwhelming wall of white that his car or this mechanical beast is roaring out of. So there's, a, there's great textures and differences in, scenes that are happening that way that are all i think leading to what you're saying it's like the focus of the character is the middle and then there's this you know intangible landscape behind them that's sort of uh, you know providing context but not specific well to me that's in a way that's what the movie's about you know you have the urgency of the characters in the foreground and then this more amorphous nebulous thing yes behind them and it's all about that i mean to me that's sort of like a spatial relationship and yes detest, you know because every every this movie is you know kind of like a butterfly effect movie where you know someone does something over here on you know and then 25 miles away it affects someone else you know it just yes. of course that's what grows all about and uh you know what in this scene it's of course significant because uh, what Drucker's explaining to Charlene is not the, the spatial relationship, but the temporal relationship. What decision you make right now is going to affect Dominic 25, 30 years down the road. And um, in the sense, you know, in heat, L.A. is this big microcosm for existential human relationships. And it's interesting where uh, uh, Michael Mann goes after that, because The Insider, I've always said, is a movie about the kind of the 
abrogation of distance. And by that, I mean, The Insider is a movie that seems to take, whereas Heat is L.A., The Insider is everywhere. Yes. It begins Beirut, and then you're in Kentucky, you're in New, New York, York City, in Colorado, you're, uh, you know, all over the place. And it, it Michael Mann will set up this a, a gorgeous shot in this uh, fantastic set. And it's just going to be a few seconds of this one FBI contact walking to a telephone or answering his pager to get in touch with Lowell Bergman. I mean, Lowell Bergman is everywhere basically in the same way that Michael Mann's camera is. And, um, to, you know, he increasingly, and if you watch Ali, you know, it's, you know, even though it's set in 1960, 61 to 1974, he's tying things up, you know, something that happens in Miami and, you know, but then something's happening in Liberia and how, and then of course Vietnam and how do all these things intersect? And he doesn't do it in a, concrete on the nose way but it's it's just it, i think it makes you aware of how um close we are how global things are becoming and then of course miami vice is all about is that global capitalism, global capitalism. Black and you know the the, my, the michael mann book that just came out uh, by elaine shannon hunting LaRue. Hunting LaRue, which you've got to read. I've got it on pre-order. Damn you. I can't wait to get it. But that's, you know, about a criminal, you know, a criminal who's just sort of uh, almost a a ghost, you know, and it's all about how everything is sort of interconnected. And, you know, and I think, you know, going back to heat, circling back to heat, (laughs) this is a this is the prototype for for where um, the world will be going, you know, in the information age. I think I think you've made a great point there, but and 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 nailed it by the distinction of in heat, this man has a bit of like a style of reverberation, you know, like something's going to impact. And once he transitions to global, um, he 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 very organically allows you to sort of pivot and bounce and have the energy of. Uh, corresponding events bouncing around the globe or bouncing around the country and things like that. And in heat, the almost like the dome effect of LA means that the effects are just simply bouncing and reverberating through the dome. It's like being all over this, you know, this singular landscape. Um, So what's great about the insider and, you know, when you're in the dome, you're never going to escape. You're going to, you're never going back. You're never going to escape. It's, it's hard, but I love what you said about the insider, which is the start of, even though we've got a global footprint, um, there, that amorphous thing is hostile. And in LA, the amorphous city, the exterior, it's not as pervasive and evil as, what's coming in the insider like in the insider everything around you people are listening random people yeah. at golf courses are watching you you know every bill every time you're in a building someone's listening to you. you go to a hotel in a lobby everyone is hostile like um you know a random person in a suit in heat they're a hostile figure so yeah it's really interesting to watch him play in certain sandboxes and allow these things to reverberate off one and each other which is why collateral and heat have such a weird distant relationship to one another for that same connection but yeah you're so right los angeles microcosm but i think you know it's collateral it's um 
Alfred Torina, the the uh, Javier Bardem character, represents a character closer to Archa- Archangel okay. Montoya from Miami Vice, the global criminal, you know, and ev- all this other, you know, the the, um, the jazz man who with Vietnam ties and all, all this kind, you know, it, the whole movie is again fraught with background, and you know, it it all <laughs> it, it connects to. There's a whole world out there, you know. If which... you don't have time for more Barack, uh, Barack Shabaka Hanley, Barack Shabaka Hanley in any movie, even if it is an, a, even if it is a, a background jazz man, then you know, you know, you can't listen to this podcast anymore, guys. We, you, you're a Michael Mann fan if you just want more of that. Look, you've got an amazing personal story that I, I hope or I'm okay to ask you to prompt you to share in this moment because I think it's like. You know, we've got another upcoming minute that I'm looking forward to re- recording. Uh, guys, Niles is going to be back. He's a huge friend of the show, and he'll probably be back more than one more time after this great episode. Um, okay. But um, uh, And his next episode, I will tease, may involve Vincent kicking a television out of a car. And and my theory, and we'll have discussed it in much more detail when it happens, whether people at that bus stop actually were extras or knew they were being filmed, um, because it's my favorite organic reaction of background actors, I think, almost in any film for any anything. Um, but you, you know, we talked about Dominic being this, the, the presence that is absent in this scene, but is having such sway over the decisions that are being made in the mm. scene. And you yourself have something that's in your life that is like real and tangible that we can talk about here. Yeah, uh, you had a cop on the show before, and uh, I should—I'll disclose that I, I had a stepfather who was a bank robber, um, and he—he he didn't, you know, in terms of comparing him to Michael Mann characters, he's not a new colleague. You know, he's, <laughs> Probably closer to the guy that Dustin Hoffman or maybe even Gary Boosie played in Straight Time, which is not a Michael Mann movie, but he worked but on it. Yeah, but it's Eddie Eddie Bunker, right? Yeah, a, a Michael yeah. Mann uh, a Michael yeah. Mann character in real life. Yeah, uh, or he's closer. To, he's probably even closer to one of the gambling degenerates from uh, David Milch's Luck. Yes, uh, this was a guy. My stepfather or ex stepfather was he was an alcoholic and gambling junkie and he basically ruined my life and ruined my mother's life and my older sister's life and of course there were he had two children with my mother um whose lives were of course greatly affected and after um my mother made the decision to separate from him uh some time passed and i came home and there were men in suits who uh, were surrounding the house and then I, I went inside and then I heard my mother cry. I just blurred out this, this in, in mourning and it turns out that uh, my stepfather had robbed a couple banks and it was, he, he was, it was on the news and he was um, caught on surveillance cameras. I think it was a daughter from a previous marriage of his that turned him in. So he was he'd already served time for DWIs for, uh, you know, there were times when, as I said, he was an alcoholic. Yeah. Yeah. Driving under the influence. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Cool. Yep. We've got the same terminology in ours. You get it too many of those. You have to do some time. You know, I think he did some six month stint at one 
point in time. And, you know, to give you an, a clue as to what things were like living with this guy, uh, he'd be out of town going to Vegas and we get calls from loan sharks and stuff, you know, looking for money and, uh, you know, he ruined my mother's credit and stuff like that. Yeah. Basically everything that Drucker is telling Charlene in this, you know, about the effects of how having family, you know, that's very pertinent to this discussion. And I took, uh, I saw heat four times in 1995. And this was after, this is while, uh, my stepfather was serving time for these two bank robbing stints. And I took, and the fourth time I saw it was with my mother and the scene with, uh, the bank robbery scene, even though it's nothing like, <laughs> yes, my step, because my, what my stepfather did was kind of like what George Clooney does in out of sight. Yes. You know, which is just all you have to do to rob a bank is tell a, a bank teller, I have a gun. Give me your money. That that kind of thing. The old man and the gun with Robert Redford, an absolutely stellar movie. Same, Same principle. Yeah, and and my stepfather was a uh, charming, manipulative uh, son of a bitch, and you know, so I don't think I don't want to believe Robert Redford's character is like, <laughs> but uh, but my mother started crying during that scene. Uh, during the bank robbery scene with the Brian Eno music because and she really wanted my little brother and sister to see the movie because, you know, she was looking at the trauma of the victims of the, mm. of the you know, there's just how scared everyone was, the civilians were. Mm. And uh, she was projecting the fear of, you know, what whatever bank teller yeah. was feeling whenever Rick was, uh, my stepfather was doing what he was doing. Uh, but fast forward some years into the new millennium, we've sort of fell out of touch with this guy. Um, even with his own children, he, after he got out of prison, he became estranged. And, uh, I guess you could say he was canceled as the kids now say now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but around 2004, uh, we were doing, I think, uh, we, someone got a call. Uh, I don't know if it was my younger brother or younger sister or my mother, but it turns out that he was back in prison for 20 counts of uh, robbery. Wow. And what, what he had done was apparently gone on a spree uh, with a girlfriend, and he became known as the prolific credit union bandit. He targeted credit unions yes. in the West. Uh, and I think uh, allegedly he got around to 40 credit unions over several years, uh, though they nailed him, I think, for 20 of them or something. And then he got sentenced to a 20 year, 20, to do 20 years. And he died in prison, I think, four years ago, I think, of cancer. But, but you know, but to speak of Dominic, to circle back to that, my my younger brother would have been Dominic in this case. Yes. And, um, you know, my younger brother was someone who was sort of falling into that, that, um, problematic, um, area of someone who doesn't really have a father there. And our mother worked her ass off basically. You know, this is a single mom. Yeah. Her four kids. And, uh, you know, so she, she really wasn't around, but my younger brother, would steal license plates and 
trying to get all 50 states and, you know, which uh, I, I guess he got a felony at the age of 19 or 20. And, uh, you know, everyone thought that he was going to be a terrible kid, but, uh, eventually he turned his life around. He, uh, I think, a, an ex-girlfriend's father became kind of a, took an avuncular interest in him and sort of financed him to go to school. And, and he became a, a scientist and, Nowadays, he's one of the most physically fit, mentally fit um, people you could imagine ever meeting. You know, with wife, a wife and child, very responsible and kind of the antithesis to his father. He's a lot like his father in terms of his cleverness and intelligence. You know, the thing about my stepfather is that, yeah, he was an asshole and he traumatized all of us and it was a, you know, a psychologically abusive and at times physically abusive environment. Uh, you know, to come bring back to the, the, the departed, it's sort of that thing where, you know, you have one existence at this household, especially if it's one that's abusive. And then with your, with my biological father, who's basically the nicest guy on the planet, it's a totally different existence. So you have a different countenance, a different psychology. And then yes. with, grandparents saying, you know, so you, you become kind of a fractured person. And, um, I think we basically made it, made our way through it, but yeah, Rick Matsky or my ex stepfather, um, is a bank robber. (laughs) So it's, it's again, hard to compare him to a specific Michael Mann criminal aside from, is one of the more bumbling ones, probably Wayne Grow without the without the serial killer <laughs> fetish. He, he was a nar- he, he was capable of being a nice guy. That's the thing, and that's that's something that Michael Mann shows you. I think is that yeah, because Neil, we like Neil. We do. Can and, I firstly uh, can I can I firstly before you go any further, I just want to say like that was a I'm kind of moved, definitely moved and honored that you felt comfortable enough to share that much detail on the show. So firstly, thank you. Um, and uh, I think the one of the things that resonates across this film is authentic portrayals of real people in real dramatic situations that feel authentic. And right now, forgetting the bombast of a heist and bank robbery and just effortlessly cool things that happen across, you know, this movie and, and, and lines and things like that that are memorable, there are really rich portrayals of like real people experiencing and having to do to make moral choices when they're backed into corners that they may not want to make. So I just want to say firstly, mate, as, as, a, as you being a friend and a friend of the show, thank you. That was like, I feel really moved and I feel really honored and I feel great that you would, you would share. And secondly, it's also, I don't think we need to draw the direct line between Rick Matsky and a Michael Mann character, because obviously there are, <laughs> there, there are layers, but, but I, I, I think that's, if we're talking about the innate power of this scene and the upcoming scenes and, and just the impact of lives that I think this movie's aspiration is doing, I think the fact that, you know, your mother had a connection and, and your mother wanted, um, you know, your brother and sister to see the film as well. I think that that's a really, you know, uh, I, I feel like the filmmakers would be heartened and moved deeply to hear that, it, it, it registered that authenticity because absolutely you can see that that, that that's the aspiration and everything that they've produced. Even though I, I don't know if I've ever forgiven my, you know, Rick, uh, I know that Lage, my little brother has, yes. Uh, you know, he was, he was, um, estranged 
from him until his death. You know, he, he apparently left a message to be relayed to him that, you know, um, I, I'm grateful for you for, if for no other reason, I wouldn't be where I am now. Yeah. <laughs> if, if not for you, you know, which is a, its own kind of complicated thing, you know, because, you know, I think someone who really came out of the whole thing more scarred than any of us was, uh, my mother, you know, uh, and bless her her single mom and being a tough Charlene Chahel, as tough as goddamn nails in the face of all of those scenarios to help you kids through. Amazing. But I look at, you know, I look at Donald Breeden, for example, and his character, and I see, I see a lot of Rick there, you know, Mm. in, in the sense that when you're, it's hard to go straight when you, you're, you've already made so many fuck ups. I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot, I, you know, people aren't essentially anything good or evil. That's, I think that's what Michael Mann movies are about. But, um, you know, Robert De Niro's Neil Macaulay, for example, again, is a, an attractive character and we certainly like him, but he's been programmed in such a way as to, you know, in a subsequent scene when he walks in to Edie's apartment, you know, he says, if you want out, there's the door. Well, that's her apartment. <laughs> you, you realize this guy is a sociopath. Yes. You know, he, he could still love her. He, he could still, you know, and he becomes quite needy, but you know, he, he is a sociopath. And, I think gradually we see we I think that becomes more transparent and and uh, makes his character appropriately tragic, you know, for, for the towards the end of the film. Well, I think that's the perfect way to end this podcast, this episode of One Heat Minute, the 126th episode of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus. We have 39 episodes to go of the actual film five credit minutes to go so we are on the downhill slope Noel schwartz that was it firstly it's amazing talking to you guys there's not there's rarely folks that are as articulate um and as uh, as passionate uh, and as as just savvy uh, I don't have a better word than to say savvy when we're talking about Michael Mann because so many of them are crooks, but savvy, as the British people would say, um, uh, uh, film mind um, than Niles. So uh, thank you, mate, again, for being a huge part of the show and being a friend of the show. I really appreciate it. And for your story, um, I was incredibly moved that you felt felt comfortable enough to share it. And I think that anyone who's listening is going to have a, um, a, a, a have an emotional reaction to that. And I just want to thank you so much for feeling comfortable enough to share um, that with the show. So thank you, mate. Hey, Mike. Uh, I'm honored to be here and I love one heat minute. So. Oh, you're the best. Thank you for saying that. Look, guys, <laughs> um, the best place to find Niles is, is Twitter. It's uh, at... Niles Files that links off to um, he's the co-founder and writer for um, the Minneapolis and St. Paul Cinephile Society um, and he's also a contributor to Point Magazine uh, which is pointmag.com and Slant as well um, and if you want to do yourselves a favour as I will I'll always put the link to Niles um, book off the map um, you can buy it on Amazon and Kindle which I have so um, or you can buy a hard copy but a very worthwhile read and especially if you're someone who's obsessive enough to have gotten to episode 126 in one heat minute you need to read Niles's book so um, I think it, it helps to open up the universe um, thanks to Garth Franklin for our web design thank you to Mr. Paul Davies for our theme 
and uh, and thank you guys for listening. Blake is Batman on Twitter, mail at one heat minute and oneheatminute.com for everything and uh, we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner and remember I don't need to sell this shit. This shit sells itself. Sells itself. 